0: just before you start listening to this podcast a reminder that we have a special subscription offer you can get 12 issues of the spectator for 12 pounds as well as a 20 pound amazon voucher go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of the Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Emma Smith, who is the Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Oxford and has written a new book called This Is Shakespeare, which is out imminently from Pelican Books. Emma, welcome. Now, there seems to be a sort of very Shakespearean paradox almost immediately because you've given your book this extremely indicative title, This Is Shakespeare. And yet it's a book actually about the indeterminacy of Shakespeare, isn't it?
1: That's absolutely right. And and in fact, I try to have a go at saying maybe we should turn Shakespeare from a noun into a verb and to think that the this is Shakespeare of my title is actually about an approach to the works rather than the works as, as monumental. But you're absolutely right. There is a kind of paradox in there. And I'm sort of trying to undo that sense that Shakespeare's on a pedestal. And, yeah, yeah. He's, I mean,
0: you use a... The word gappiness to describe Mm. the kind of distinctive
1: quality of Shakespeare. Could you say, say what do you mean by gappiness? So by gappiness, I mean all kinds of indeterminacy in Shakespeare. And that goes from relatively small scale texture, plays, all plays of this period. But Shakespeare particularly are not telling us anything other than what the characters say. So we don't know anything about how they say it. ...that isn't encoded in the speech. We don't know anything about the actions they're taking. So there are very few, relatively few stage directions in Shakespeare... ...and there are no descriptive stage directions at all. So there's a kind of of openness there. There's a gap there that the, the sort of choreography of the plays... ...is very much open to interpretation. And then there are other kinds of conceptual gaps, I suppose... I'm not writing a, a kind of historical account of Shakespeare but I am interested in a Shakespeare who gets the energy of his works from having one for either side of quite a big historical shift or a bit a big divide from a broadly providentialist religious broadly kind of medieval view of Sort of causation and the world to something we would associate with Machiavelli and Hobbes that's more human-centred and that that question of you know why things happen there seems a gap between different sort of theories of the world which I think he's also exploring so so some of the gaps are sort of technical but have interpretive consequences and some are more philosophical I suppose. Yeah I
0: was going to say some of the technical gaps you describe you know, the characters I not described so forth, seem to be you know very hardly unique to Shakespeare I mean aren't they something that every play pretty much has in common I mean you know you might get some 20th century stage directions that says you know x is tall and wears an ostrich feather hat but
1: yeah certainly by the 20th century you are tending to get very directive stage directions uh, if you look at the stage directions that Arthur Miller uses for instance every speech perhaps has three or four parentheses about you know the the pace or the tone of voice or whatever no you're right it's partly about the the gap of reading a script i mean i i do think in some way shakespeare's plays it's helpful to think about them as scripts that is to say part of the toolkit you would need to put the play on but not the whole thing as opposed to lyric poetry or the novel which could claim to be the whole thing itself
0: you talk about Shakespeare being on a pedestal and, you know, wanting to take him off a pedestal. I mean, it also strikes me that, I remember, you know, when I was at university, when I was at school, you know, your A-levels, you'd get the rest of literature and then a special section on Shakespeare, you know, special papers on Shakespeare. You know, you're the professor of Shakespeare studies. There aren't very many people who have job titles like that that refer to one single writer. And... You know, what do you feel about that? I mean, do you think because it seems to be baked into our institutions, even at an academic level, where you'd think that that would be seem anti-intellectual that there's the canon and then there's Shakespeare that he stands completely aside from and above the rest of the canon?
1: I think that's a really interesting paradox about where we are with Shakespeare right now. That in some ways Shakespeare is the sort of apex of this uh, canonical pyramid. He looks like the ultimate dead white male author who is over invested by sort of literary history and on the other hand I suppose we are seeing quite a lot of that investment being kind of leveraged towards more radical or more progressive kind of readings of the plays so there is and a sense of having it we're still reading the sort of plays of no that's absolutely yeah. right I mean if you wanted to it it's striking to me that the big experiments really about cross-racial or colorblind casting, so-called cross-gender casting, they've they've happened through Shakespeare as if the content is so beyond reproach that it it offers a vehicle to do something which might be a bit more controversial. So there are interesting ways that Shakespeare plays in our in our culture and in part of me thinks yes this is um a, a kind of greedy, spoilt kind of child of the canon that's taking all the attention away from away from other things. And part of me thinks, well, that shared sense that we we know something about what this is does enable some other kinds of readings to come in.
0: You mean because we, we've we studied him so thoroughly that he becomes... A...
1: We've studied him so thoroughly. We have, you know, theatres that are going to put on his works. We have a sense of an audience who will come to the works even if something slightly different is being done with them. Some of the work of, of sort of publicising has already been done, and and some of the sense of why this is worth doing is already hardwired into our culture. But I I absolutely accept the the paradox. And I guess the reason I wanted, I mean, I do teach lots of other Renaissance dramatists. I think there are some wonderful, interesting dramatists. We almost always teach those historically as products of their time and interesting commentators on their time. And although there is a strong and really interesting strand of thinking about Shakespeare historically in some ways what interests me is that much longer history the kind of 400 year history of keeping Shakespeare as a contemporary figure which doesn't really I can see that we don't really part of the problem, Kidd, but we don't, we know, don't kind of really read Kidd as now work, or Web, yeah. even Webster or Middleton or those people yeah and
0: who, who enshrined do you think I mean or were the major staging posts in enshrining Shakespeare our contemporary I mean I guess Ben Johnson Comes into it, but
1: well, Johnson's sort of elegy, eulogy for Shakespeare in the First Folio of Shakespeare, so in sixteen twenty-three. I mean, is a wonderful staging point. He says Shakespeare isn't uh, not for an age, but for all time. He does actually one of the funny things about Johnson is that he and he acknowledges this himself. He's a bit of a renter quote, and he actually says quite a lot of people are effectively not of an age, but for all time. My favourite example of that is a person called Thomas Corriat, about whom (laughs) he was almost certainly wrong. Corriat did not last, so he he has a line in these puffs. Johnson writes. He writes it's a like Hilary
0: Mantel or Lee Child of his day. You know.
1: that, that's a low blow, <laughs> Sam. Since you know that Hilary Mantel has very kindly written a blurb for my book, but oh no, quite. God, quite, I didn't actually. <laughs> no, quite so. I withdraw that immediately. Quite, no, no, quite, quite so. Yeah. So uh, Johnson will Johnson will do anything for money. I think he writes a great little uh, pageant for the opening of Britain's Birth, which is essentially the opening of a shopping centre. I mean, he he would be there. But yeah, Johnson is important. Johnson is. It's a slightly backhanded thing. I think Johnson is saying, this isn't very fashionable, but nevertheless it will last. And there is a sense that Shakespeare has lasted, perhaps because it was never as topical as other writers' work, including Johnson's, was. There's a great point when Dryden says, you know, sort of 50 years later, I admire Johnson, but I love Shakespeare. And we start to move from a sense that Ben Johnson is a more classically informed and a more rigorous playwright, but Shakespeare is a more effective one. And there's a long history of saying, you know, Shakespeare does emotion and character and other po- other playwrights might construct plays more, more properly and with more, more decorum and their language might be more decorous, but they don't get to this poet of nature kind of point. But the big, I mean, the Shakespeare, our contemporary phrase, comes from the Polish theatre director and intellectual Jan Kott, writing in the Early 60s, translated into English in the mid-60s, very influential on Peter Brook, Peter Hall, that new line of Royal Shakespeare Company productions like the sort of white box Midsummer Night's Dream really were decisive in a sort of modernist kind of Shakespeare production style. I mean, another
0: more recent staging post, which you seem to me to take quite strong issue with, at least implicitly, is the sort of Harold Bloom idea that people didn't really have inner lives until Shakespeare invented the idea of having inner lives for them, you're quite sceptical. I think it's fair to say in this book, aren't you, of the idea that interiority or the sort of inner lives of mm. the character is the important bit, mm. or is even a a bit that we aren't just reading into Shakespeare? Mm. Can you say why you do resist that so much? I mean, because people go, but soliloquies.
1: Mm. I yeah, I do resist that. I partly resist it because there's a lot of that material already. It's very it's very it's very widespread it's very mainstream in our a level teaching it's a, it's the kind of thing that one of the really interesting I think popular forms of discourse about Shakespeare comes from actors talking about performing and I find that often you know really full of insight and interest but they're really obviously they're playing characters they have to make the characters like real people and they have to make the characters really important people. One of the things that was most controversial about the edition the RSC edition of the plays was it gave the percentage of lines for each character and that Blew away directors, reassuring people to say, you know, you're absolutely crucial to this play. You know, so you've got two percent of the. <laughs> life yes, I think
0: or John John has a very small part. <laughs> yes, he does have it. a very
1: small part. Uh, boom, boom. There's a long history of thinking that Shakespeare does character and that these are character-driven plays. And I suppose I wanted to explore something slightly different, which is less that Shakespeare writes characters first and then they do things, and more that Shakespeare inherits plots first. And he writes the characters who can enact those plots. Uh, so that's a slightly different model of priority. And sometimes character s- sort of flaws or character gaps or character inconsistencies seem to me more the result of a slight misfit between the plot and the, and the character than they do some sort of psychic agony or other. So, for example, the big question in Othello, which is from Coleridge onward, has been, uh, why does Iago do what he does? What's Iago's motivation? I mean, in some ways, we could take that question out of the play by saying... Uh, of course, you know Iago is a mechanism in the plot. This is what needs. This is what needs to happen. It's not that his motives are too deep and too profound and too psychological to be explained. It's that they're actually irrelevant. What, what matters is that he does it.
0: Yes, you I, you pay great attention. For instance, I think you know all's well ends well. You say you know, the characters are completely uninteresting, but it's about mechanism and about plot as, yes. as, as, as contraptions.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think Shakespeare is a plot first writer rather than a character-first writer. And I think that's probably, in some ways, relates to that larger question of agency, what makes the things happen that happen. It's completely natural to us in the 21st century to think character does, we do. You know, it's all, you know, our history is the history of great men and, you know, that's what's important. I'm not sure that's as available as as an explanatory framework for Shakespeare, but I also think he's not quite so... Interested in that, he is interested in story arcs and narratives, and they have an energy of their own.
0: Well, genre is a huge. thing. I mean, you've got some lovely little sort of zingers of various aphorisms. I mean, you have, you know, Henry the Fourth, Part One. You call a history play that would prefer not to be. You've got. You say Hamlet is a belated history play. Julius Caesar is part history, part tragedy. You see Winter's Tale as a comedy wrenched out of a tragedy. I mean, you do you think Shakespeare's I mean, we understand the genres, and obviously the Folio said, you know, there's histories, there's tragedies, there's comedies, and subsequently we've said, well, there are problem plays, you know, there's all. Do we think Shakespeare thought about genre in that same way, if you like, that we do now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. That's a really great question because I don't think that genre genre theory is as is as well developed or is is as important to shakespeare we know those folio divisions are posthumous so we don't know whether shakespeare would have thought that's a good that's a good division the history play is an interesting genre because it seems less about a shape which is what we tend to think genre is and more about content so you can have comic histories ending in you know, marriage or, or something. You can have more tragic histories around. So, presumably,
0: of, there aren't classical antecedents. There are for no classical plays, antecedents. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, it's a place. You, yeah, absolutely. So, it's a place where genre seems a little bit m- more up for grabs. But we can certainly see Shakespeare. I think experimenting with with genres. He, he's, he's. So Othello is a kind of kind of yeah. essentially comedy.
0: I think that was really interesting. Or at least yeah. he uses these comic. He
1: absolutely uses comic tropes. He uses the idea of of a marriage. The idea that love might be the motor for tragedy. That the idea that in, that, that in comedy brings about a happy ending, which is that we are more ourselves in groups or in couples or in communities. That seems to be what comedy says. We are social animals and that's where, that's what a happy ending would be. It's less a kind of romantic ending and more a kind of communal one. Tragedies seem to say we are most ourselves and it's not a pretty sight when we're on our own. And Othello makes a tragedy out of that comic incompleteness because the fact that Othello is incomplete has gone along with the kind of romantic idea that he's incomplete without Desdemona is a sort of fatal wound for him and you know that's where, that's where it all goes wrong so I am really interested in how those comedies turn into tragedies and how at the end of his career Shakespeare's very clearly thinking about how you could flex those boundaries paste one onto the end of another he's doing that under the influence of the fashion for tragedy comedy which John Fletcher is, is big in mm
0: something that feeds into that question, I think is this one of as you describe it, his having his foot on both sides of of these divides of a sort of medieval worldview and a one because predetermination, fate or grace in a kind of puritan yeah. worldview obviously is you know one of the characteristics of classical tragedy, isn't it and yet you've got these classic speeches, you know the fault is not in our stars but with us. I've got that I've got that wrong the wrong way around haven't I um but, but the, the 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 argument I think you also got Edmund and Lear saying you know it's not it's not divine intervention it's yes. not the spheres it's not the stars it's yeah, you know, it's what we do. Yeah, and human moral agency. Yeah, Where, I mean Shakespeare seems to sort of straddle both sides of the divide. I mean, you got...
1: absolutely does. Yeah, and I think Edmund's a really good example. So Edmund in the play is called in the, all the early printings of the play is called bastard. That's his speech prefix. That's his name in the stage directions. That's really his name in the play, and so. Even as he is saying, you know, we make our own fates, we are our own people. You know, he's saying it from the mouthpiece of being an absolute type character. You know, he's a bastard in, in a modern and an early modern sense, which completely explains his malevolence. So that seems a really nice example of how Shakespeare gives a character a speech about human possibility and human self-realization but sort of curtails it by saying and 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 this dramatic or social type is the person who's going to deliver it so i think often these moments of apparent human um motivation and and agency in the world are are undercut by by the context Uh, and i think that is a really fascinating do you
0: ever feel him coming down on one side or the other
1: I think you can make him come down on one side or the other. And I think there's been a long history of trying to do that, a long history, for example, of setting Julius Caesar in a context and with a costuming that makes it clear, yes, Caesar is a tyrant, and these people are freedom fighters or defenders of the Republic, or, you know, Caesar is an authority, and these are terrorists you know you but but their their attempts to clarify by analogy but i think the play that play is not that does, doesn't really come down on one side or the other and i am i do think that shakespeare learning i, I became really interested in this technique that was a big part of humanist education erasmus uh, recommends it and it was rolled out in grammar schools like the Stratford Grammar School. This idea that what you do with your classical education is to try to look at situations from the other side, to write a part for someone who isn't speaking, to write Dido's Lament when Aeneas has left, or, you know, one of the things that's not there, but that you've got some of the raw materials the classical
0: for. classical rhetoric thing,
1: or yeah, from the other side or from both sides. And that seems to have been inadvertently a very, very good training for playwrights because it does give you a sense that there's always another voice in the conversation and Shakespeare is really good at giving those moments that are in excess of what's required actually um, for strict plotting and that do tend to give us a sense of sympathy and that will be a that will be an argument for you know gestures towards those rounded or um, more interior characters that I was arguing but is against there any
0: before. any danger that this idea of Shakespeare as a kind of I don't know vanishing point of negative mm. capability <laughs> a figure who can encompass every opposite mm. is itself a sort of a historical asegetic kind of projection from an age that kind of values indeterminacy i mean w- you know reading him historically in his own age would would be actually you know he's playing with these ideas, but his basic framework is x.
1: Well, I can see that writing a book in 2019 which says this is somebody who can see both sides of difficult questions, I mean, that's a very compelling... I mean, I can see why I might have done that, and I can see that... You know, in, in, in five years' time, that might be even clearer to me, that, that my own sense of Shakespeare is very much a product of, of now, and it's the Shakespeare that, or the thinker that perhaps we need, who is not on one side of a binary, like, like all of the rest of us. So, I mean, I, I do see that that's an ahist- that is ahistorical. I, I guess my larger point about Shakespeare is that we should be ahistorical, there's some things we can learn from the historical context, and there are some things that many better historians than than me have done really brilliantly. Jim Shapiro's work is absolutely fantastic about thinking what did Shakespeare mean then, and what did he get from then? And I suppose I'm trying to give permission, in a way, to say, actually, Shakespeare has, has changed, as we all have from then, and what we think now is as... It's as relevant or as permitted by the plays as as those earlier readings.
0: Keeps him alive a bit as I mean, well.
1: Absolutely keeps him alive, yeah.
0: I remember being, I think it was Simon Russell Beale's production, seeing Hamlet. And they staged it in a way that made it very, you know, the Christian aspect of that play. Mm. You know, that the idea that people were really, really frightened of going to hell was something I completely sort of missed mm-hmm. in my schoolboy reading of the mm. the plays. And you draw attention to something which I think Stephen Greenblatt explores at more length. That you know, old Hamlet is a ghost, mm-hmm. and he's saying, you know, I've been, I'm in purgatory, yeah. which is a you know Catholic notion. And mm-hmm. this, I mean, this argument about how, you know was Shakespeare a recusant Catholic right. is not one for us to really explore here. But was it just a mistake that he put what appear to be two kind of semi incompatible religious schemes into Hamlet?
1: Well, I mean, one argument could be by putting those incompatible schemes or those versions of religious understanding, which are our absolute loggerheads in the period, that that is an emblem of the theatre as this both sides of the question kind of space, that only in the theatre could a Catholic ghost encounter a Protestant graduate of Wittenberg University, Luther's University, and that, you know, maybe that is a sense that it's not an entirely. Modern projection onto the plays to see them as as kind of balanced. I don't know whether it's a mi- mistake, although I do think Shakespeare m- makes mistakes. But I think you could argue that it it registers the kind of impossibility of being a man of the first Reformation generations. Where I mean, Greenblatt, Stephen Greenblatt is absolutely brilliant on this. Where we you know, like perhaps like Hamlet, Shakespeare is a Protestant son haunted by a Catholic father. And that, but perhaps that was, that's a generational point. That's everybody was probably, everybody, you know, everybody in that new generation suffered this great breach from the generations that had gone before them because of the change in religion.
0: Was it even worse than the Brexit conversation in our generation? Even,
1: even worse than the Brexit conversation, yeah, a sense of being either side of a, of a divide, of an un- unbridgeable divide, but perhaps a divide which Shakespeare wanted to think was, was possible to bridge in the theatre just because there are lots of ways that Hamlet... When I was writing about Hamlet, I wanted, in a way, to counter the sense that Hamlet is all about the modern and that it looks forward and anticipates things that come later, and instead to try and think about all the ways in which it's quite a retrospective, mournful, melancholy, past kind of a play, and, and religion was, was one of those. But theatre is, is, is another one. I mean, the, one of the things that's preserved in Hamlet is an older model of what theatre might be like, and that too seems quite nostalgic.
0: Yeah. It's very interesting to me to read at least, You're saying that in sort of tragedy, top of the pops, Hamlet was the 19th century's pinnacle of the tragedy. They yes. didn't really like Lear. Yeah. And that in the 20th century, suddenly King Lear was the pinnacle of Shakespeare's tragedies.
1: Yeah. You know, I think the people who enjoyed Shakespeare in the 19th century saw themselves in this clever, troubled, melancholy, Sense of loss, kind of kind of Hamlet figure, and it's clear that a century that could give us, you know, Passchendaele and Hiroshima and Auschwitz and all those terrible things, understood King Lear as a more, as as a much less comfortable view of what of what we can do to each other. Humanity must perforce prey upon itself like monsters of the deep. I mean, is really the man's man's inhumanity to man kind of argument, yeah. So Lear became the great play for the for the 20th century. I think so far there's a, there's a move to to Othello as a as a 21st century play, as we, as again a kind of Islamic Christian battleground seems one of our. Crucial kind well, of well, more becomes yeah. a
0: kind of huge quibble. I mean, not within yeah. the play, but outside it. Isn't yeah, it,
1: completely. So, more—it seems that for the early seventeenth century, the dominant meaning of more was Muslim, was was a religious meaning, and only an ethnic one secondarily, and also a geographical one about about the region of North Africa. So that's a region which, of course, has become you know. Hugely politicised again about Mediterranean travel and Mediterranean power struggles and so on. And Cyprus, we see, you know, one of the the great setting of Othello, still divided, still the landing and takeoff refuelling point for the you know planes going to the Middle East and for, you know going yeah. to Syria <laughs> and those kinds of things. You know, it's, it, it, this is still this is still a hot spot, sort of battleground. And and I think the play has come back into that in some ways and come back into the kind of racialized debates, particularly in the American classroom. So maybe the 21st century play will be Othello. Maybe we'll have moved Hamlet, Othel- Hamlet Kingley or Othello. I
0: was fascinated to move actually briefly back to Hamlet because it's a good example. You pick up in, at different points in the book on points which Shakespeare gives characters the same name mm-hmm. or similar ones,
1: mm.
0: you know, which obviously if somebody's using sort of stage, from point of view of stagecraft, that often looks a bit, you know... Why would he give the characters mm-hmm. the same name? That's mm-hmm. that's an ineptitude. Mm-hmm. Why does he give several characters the same name within a play?
1: It, it's it's. I mean, a everything real... from Jackquizz. Yeah, you know, ja- no, Jackquizz the the in Jack was, but, Jack you know. in As You Like It, I think, is a really interesting example. So we've got this melancholy courtier, all, all the world's a stage kind of figure in in As You Like It, and then right at the last minute in the play, the previously unseen third son. Of Roland Du Bois turns up, and he too is called Jack Quiz. And you think, you know, what, what on earth has happened? I mean, it seems part to me, in As You Like It, of the sense that the play world is actually disintegrating. Uh, where did that lioness come from? Uh, who's uh, you know seen under a about to uh, attack somebody under a tree? That's not the forest we've been in, which has seemed a much more English pastoral kind of a place. I think the play is saying, you know, it's time to go home. It's all going a little bit pear shaped here. <laughs> it's not quite, it's not quite as idenic as it seemed. Let's go back. Actually, we've done all we can here. Let's go back to court. So I think there is a feeling of of things coming unstitched, and that happens right at the end of As You Like It in Hamlet, which is not far away from it in date it's at the beginning that the overlap in names is really compelling and if you say Fortinbras as well yeah that's right that's right just in case we don't get it I think it is you know (laughs) so so good (laughs) they did it twice yeah Yeah. the first Hamlet we hear about is actually old Hamlet and it's interesting to think although he's not called old that maybe our Hamlet is young Hamlet or you know Hamlet junior Hamlet the second you know it, it is all of those Titles give a sense, perhaps, of being overshadowed by the past or having a, a more important father than than the son. So there there are ways that captures Hamlet's sort of psychic experience. I guess if you were to say this is a man haunted by his father, you wouldn't necessarily feel you had to have a ghost come on to to help us understand that. And the naming, which is unique to Shakespeare, it's not in the sources, does seem seem to emphasise that.
0: Another thing you do that takes all back, you say, the Midsummer Night's Dream, lovely Midsummer Night's Dream, which we've all seen our children trotting around being fairies. It shouldn't be performed by children. It's filthy.
1: It is, I'm afraid. It's absolutely filthy. You heard it here. There's a wonderful Elizabethan illustration of uh, Puck robbing Goodfellow, dancing around with a sort, with sort of furry legs and cloven feet, and a huge phallus. I mean, this is a, a fertility symbol. This is a, a naughty highly sexualized. Fairies for the Elizabethans were very, very sort of sexualized. That's why the fairy changeling kind of motif was not just about tripping around and swapping things in the cradle. It was about bed tricks and and taking, taking the place of the rightful sexual partner and fathering children in these different places. So there's an awful lot, I think, in Midsummer Night's Dream that we have sort of erased because of the Victorian sense that this is a this is a play of the nursery and that this is a play that's sort and of the fairies, for children. The Victorian
0: saw fairies like the sort of Cottingley fairies, the little butterfly thing. Yes, that's right. Im- yeah. images
1: of, of innocence and you know smallness and so on. I mean, actually the fairies were almost certainly doubled with the rude mechanicals. These are sort of fairies in hobnail boots in, in the play. They're big, fully human, sort of grown-up creatures. And things like, you know, Titania's Bower, the trick. That's played on Titania, that she will fall in love with Bottom with his ass's head. I mean, that seems to be uh, a trick about bestiality, a sense, a sort of, you know, rather sort of indecorous questions about. Uh, how how much of the rest of his body is on this kind of scale There is even
0: a, like a donkey joke in there I, I there, think yeah.
1: that's absolutely right, I don't think Titania takes bottom to her bower to stroke his ears as she does in so many illustrations I don't think that that is the humiliation which would make her give up the changeling boy which is Oberon's claim on her, so yeah I think, I think it's a play which I, I wanted to suggest that lots of books about Shakespeare, lots of books that try to make Shakespeare perhaps a little bit more approachable tend to be aimed at children and people doing exams. So by definition, they tend to kind of move away from, from some of this material. And I wanted to think about a book for grown-ups which could enjoy this more grown-up version of the play.
0: Did would wasn't the Victorians who got Shakespeare most wrong, do you think, or who most aggressively interpolated their, their version
1: I think we've probably always done it, actually, and it's a little bit unfair to say that, for me to say that, that Victorians got the Shakespeare wrong. They've invented and projected and filled out those gaps in the way that they wanted to and needed to, and that was part of establishing Shakespeare as suitable for children and suitable for school. We get the first school teaching of Shakespeare, really, in, in that Will century. you not teach them at school? I've seen some absolutely brilliant Shakespeare lessons in classrooms and I think people teachers do a great job with it. I think it's I don't meet many people who say my light bulb moment about Shakespeare was at school. And I meet an awful lot of people who say I didn't get Shakespeare until I've started to come to the theatre later or I've started to do something. So I, I I'm not sure that I don't think that's because it's been badly taught. I think it's probably because Shakespeare has kind of lots lots of stuff about experience and stuff that maybe children just don't have
0: you also describe very uh, bravely that moment during act four when you're kind of nodding oh, so off
1: so boring and you're always just trying to look at your watch and it's <laughs> then there's an awful moment where you think oh 20 past nine how can it be haven't we all? Haven't we all done that? So,
0: so why is there a boring bit in Act Four? Is that simply a dramatic failing on Shakespeare?
1: I think it possibly is a dramatic failing on Shakespeare. I do not think Shakespeare is very good at Act Four. I think Shakespeare is good, at, really good at setup and really good at resolution. And then sometimes there's a sort of treading water bit where really you're just waiting for it to be time to be, to resolve. And sometimes that, I think that really casts a kind of static feeling over the play. So my exhibit a and that would be as you like it which is which has a setup and a conclusion and then an interminable amount of sort of singing and shepherds kind of arguing and nothing really happens there's nothing to do in the in between or hamlet going off to england and then being you know the pirates coming i mean what Somebody should have said to him, actually, you know, well,
0: cut to the bit with the skull.
1: Exactly, exactly. You know, he just needs to be away for it, but we don't. This is, you know, this has gone, this has gone awry somehow. So yeah, I do, I do think that, and I would like to see, I like to see. Shakespeare productions, which are, quite, which are intelligently cut. I think a two-hour Shakespeare is, can often be really excellent without an interval that you get a kind of powerful narrative out of that. And I think that most three-and-a-half-hour Shakespeare's feel about an hour too long to me. That's not always the case, but I think we do all. There is a slightly Emperor's New Clothes. We're not allowed to say that. <laughs> can I ask
0: why you chose the plays you did? Because I, I should say for the listeners who haven't yet bought the book you have a sort of brief introduction and a brief Mm. conclusion, but otherwise it's a sort of play-by-play account. Mm. But you've chosen, what, 25 or 30 players? Yeah, 20, just 20. Just 20 players? Yeah. What made you choose the ones you did? For example, you know, I read your piece on 1 Henry IV and thought, I need to read about the rest of the Henriad in, mm-hmm. in the arc, you know. Mm. What, what, what made you jump back and forth mm. and what made you pick the ones you did and exclude the ones you yeah,
1: did? Yeah, a combination of sort of an active choice and a, I guess a sort of happenstance. So the plays are in chronological order, so I try and give some sense. This is where things come in Shakespeare's career. This is how, you know, that that the, the, the Henriad is, is not as we sometimes call the two parts of Henry IV and, and Henry V, maybe Richard II as well, that's not a project for Shakespeare of you know a two-year writing period. It's, it's a more occasional set of plays, and I think by breaking it up chronologically you see that. I tried to write about plays that people might be going to see, though so most of the more commonly performed ones I did, and I tried to write about a range of, of genres. And I tried to write about plays where I thought... I had something to say which could review a larger critical history on that play and perhaps maybe point it in a particular direction so I didn't actually write about as you like it I don't really like it <laughs> not very much. as you like it not very much and I thought that would be a less you know just a less useful kind of chapter to write so there are some things I'm sorry I missed out. I'm sorry I missed out Henry V, which I would have liked to have written about. I'm sorry I missed out some of my real favourites because I thought perhaps nobody is very interested in them, like Pericles, which is a play I found really, really fascinating, but I didn't I didn't write about.
0: So you have a mixture of greatest hits and, and faves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you put The Tempest at the end, though. As you, as you say, originally, which I hadn't clocked, not being a sufficiently well-read Shakespearean, the Tempest was actually at the beginning. Yeah, it's right at the beginning of the, the first photo, folio. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It looks as if the first folio, which is the collection of 36 plays published in 1623, it looks as if it's being front-loaded to stress plays which have not previously been published. There is an economic problem about the first folio, which is that if you're keen on Shakespeare, you've already bought half of these plays. And we know from those kinds of packaged-up Compilations, it's really annoying to rebuy something you've already got in order to get some new stuff. So the folio seems to have front loaded perhaps the most recent but also things that have not been published before. And that's, that explains the order. Perhaps.
0: But did that mean that for some time scholars thought it was an early play?
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's a really good example of how what you expect to find, you do find. So now we think it's Shakespeare's last solo play or comes from the very end of his career. We see its brevity and it's the ways in which it condenses themes as a sort of summation and a, a wise late style when it was thought to be an early play, these were all thought to be germs of ideas that Shakespeare would go on to develop uh, further. And you can see how, yeah, the, the the framework that you put on the plays already, you know, predisposes what you're likely to discover. So I
0: should just end by asking: Do you have an absolute favourite, or any that you suspect encapsulate a transcendental human truth? <laughs> <laughs> just, a, just. A- pour all over your that That's right, theories. really, yeah, yeah, exactly. secretly, the, yeah. secretly. Secretly. Is the go. microphone off? Now right, I'll right. tell you about the <laughs>
1: Transcendent Human Truth. I don't think I do have an absolute favourite. I One of the things that's great about Shakespeare as something which is is alive in the theatre and in, in adaptation is that you can have these plays refreshed for you in some quite different ways. I had the great privilege of reading the novelist mark haddon's retake on pericles quite recently that book's going to be out later this year and that has really sent me back to pericles in some really fabulous ways so i think one of the reasons you know back to that question the over our over investment in shakespeare one of the wonderful consequences of that is you can keep getting a kind of refreshed shakespeare back to you which makes you see them differently and i hope my book has maybe done a tiny bit of that
0: thank you this was shakespeare this is Shakespeare, and Shakespeare will carry on. Thank you. Emma Smith, thank you very much. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.